is a uh, common household plant used for decorative uh, purposes. You probably have one in the home. Large green leaves, a little hint of lime green bordering inside the leaf, and a touch of yellow called the Diefenbachia. What many people aren't aware of is that uh, the Diefenbachia's leaves are somewhat toxic. If a child or animal were to chew on one of its leaves, their tongues would temporarily swell up and uh, it would cause an inability to speak. Because of that fact, the, the plant has the nickname Dumb Cane. The effects of its leaves cause the prevention, or they cause the prevention of someone from speaking. I thought that's an interesting plant. In fact, uh, following the service, the ushers are going to hand everybody a leaf or two. To use this week in case of emergency. <laughs> Maybe we all ought to own a plant or two and put those into practice. Who knows? Experts in the field of speech estimate that the average person creates about 12,000 sentences a day, composing about 50,000 words. If that were put into print, it'd make a small paperback of about 150 pages every day. I wonder how many of us would want to read from those paperbacks at the end of each day. If we had uh, a tape recorder that followed you around this past week and recorded everything you said, I wonder how many would want it replayed in public. A tape recorder is a rectangular piece of plastic that (laughs) plays cassettes, okay? J. Vernon McGee, the the former Bible teacher, now with the Lord with a strong Texas accent, said, you know, it takes a baby two years to learn how to talk and then 50 years to learn how to be quiet. The truth is we never do get it under control, do we? We never master it. And as I prepared to preach and as we will begin to expound on the text of Scripture related to the tongue, there are a few subjects that I know that I'll begin to preach about and immediately we all find ourselves guilty, right? If I were to get up and say, I'm going to begin to preach on the subject of prayer, every one of us would know immediately we don't do it enough. If I get up and talk about the tongue, all of us are going to immediately know we do it, use it too much. Nonetheless, we need the conviction and the challenge. The Bible refers to the power of the tongue to heal, to encourage, to edify, to teach, to support, to exhort, to pray, to praise. But this little two-ounce slab of muscle and nerve can also do the exact opposite, can it not? In fact, the first temptation came from the words crafted by a serpent. The very first sin following the fall of Adam and Eve was a sin of speech, where Adam is accusing God of giving him Eve to be his wife. And it's gone downhill from there. The Bible refers to the power of speech to corrupt, to pervert, flatter, slander, gossip, blaspheme, complain, curse, seduce, destroy, lead astray, and that's just for starters. You know, I think it's interesting. Every time I go to the doctor, and I went a few weeks ago because I had gotten sick, even though I had, in case you're wondering, taken my flu shot, the first thing the doctor looked at was my tongue. Why? Because the tongue often reveals deeper issues, deeper problems. 
Frankly, the tongue is nothing more than a little tattletale, isn't it? You know, as I studied to prepare it and I came across that thought that this, this is really nothing more than a tattletale, I immediately think of that moment in my life where my older brother tattled on me, even though I was uh, undeserving of that kind of uh, treatment. And this will date me with the patriarchs, but my three brothers and I went to a school that could actually deliver spankings. Now, can you imagine that? How many of you can remember that? A lot of old people in here, right? Along with me. <laughs> imagine that era. Some of you younger guys are going, you got to be kidding. It'd be a lawsuit. Out yet. That's true. It would be now. But my parents have the rule. I've shared this with you in the past that if we got a spanking, this is to encourage all of you parents and to the chagrin of all of you young people. They had the rule that if we got a spanking at School, we got a spanking where? Well, your parents were as cruel as mine. (laughs) Can you imagine, though, a time where parents would actually automatically side with the teacher rather than the student? What kind of horrible world was that? Well, that's the one I was raised in. Well, one afternoon, I was taken by my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Jolly... who was not very, at least at that point in time, I actually loved her. She was a wonderful teacher. Took me up the stairs of, to the library and to get a spanking. She had obviously not developed the fruit of the Spirit, which is patience, and I, had, uh, and I was going to pay for it. But the bigger problem was that my older brother saw me going up the stairs and knew I was not checking out books. And so my entire bus ride home, I pled with him, don't tattle on me. Please, don't tattle on me. Don't tell. And he promised he would not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) See, my school did not automatically tell the parents about the spanking. Again, another era. So the possibility existed. They would not find out. And that was at the top of my prayer list. That afternoon. But at the dinner table, we're sitting around eating, and my older brother, Danny, said, Stevie has something he needs to tell you. (laughs) So he could keep his promise of not tattling, but open the door. And they looked at me. I had nothing to share but my testimony, which I was ready to give. That led to a phone call to Mrs. Jolly, and that led to a great tribulation with no rapture in sight. See, my parents had another rule, and that was if you got a spanking at school and did not confess it at home, you got a spanking from both parents. I learned that from Hitler, too. So I got, I got three spankings that day, which was actually a good day compared to others I experienced as a little boy. <laughs> Listen, nobody likes a tattletale, right? I've forgiven Danny, who is now Daniel, a pastor, and, and, and he loves the Lord, and he's grown in his, his faith. <laughs> the tongue is really nothing more than the messenger that delivers the mail composed by the heart. It simply tattles on the heart. That's why we have to think heart when we see tongue. When we read the word tongue, think deeper. 
issues. See, we can handle this text that we'll handle in a little bit and and deal with it tritely. And I've found it treated that way many times. And we all leave with ten resolutions for the tongue. This is really about the heart. Solomon would say it this way. A wise man's heart guides his mouth. Proverbs 16, 23. Jesus Christ said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, we all have the same speech impediment. It's called sin. And nowhere is our sin put on display any more than with our mouths. So it is really no surprise that as James deals with the subject of progressing and maturity, he is going to address the issue of the tongue. So if you have your Bibles, this letter from James, turn to chapter 3. And we'll begin James' writings, and in this first session, we'll just call this speech therapy for the tongue. The tongue of the saint, that is, those who've believed, who follow Christ, and we need help with it. And he begins with a rather serious caution. Look at verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such... We will incur a stricter judgment. This is actually an imperative, one of over 50. You could put an exclamation point at the end of this verse. He's saying we could render it a little more woodenly. Don't be so quick to be a teacher, exclamation point. Kind of an interesting way to start, isn't it? I believe James is specifically relating this caution to teaching biblical truth. His caution could apply certainly to teachers in general because of the responsibility. But why is teaching as it relates to truth, the truth of Scripture, under such scrutiny? And why would teaching in general be something that he would caution anyone from pursuing? A teacher deals with words. His instrument is speech. The agent is the tongue by which he fashions words Lessons, instruction, which ultimately influence lives. Teachers deal with concepts, ideas. They handle pliable minds. They reveal doctrines that will influence and shape the thinking of those under their charge. Now let me back up for a minute or two and and expound on the problem I believe James is addressing in the context from which this comes. The word for teacher here, didaskalos, comes out of the context of the Jewish synagogue, carried with it the the teacher, the, the term, a great deal of admiration and respect. The New Testament teacher, the New Testament pastor, was in some ways inheriting... Uh, the legacy, the heritage of of the rabbi. Uh, The rabbi was a Jewish teacher who had given his life to studying the law, its application to life. He was engaged in teaching others. It It was more than likely the most highly influential position in the Jewish community, probably second only to the Sanhedrinists, those judges that occupied the Supreme Court of, of Israel. One Old Testament scholar commenting on James' 
caution here said, the rabbi was treated in a way that was most likely to ruin his character. Everywhere he went, he was called teacher or rabbi. The word actually means my great one. Great one. Can you imagine going throughout the day and everybody who says hello to you says, Hello, great one. Tantamount and Arvin Akhenor are saying, You're the greatest. You're the greatest. You're the greatest. That would ruin anybody. During the lifetime of James... It was held that a man's duty to his rabbi exceeded his duty to his parents. They taught that because they believed that the parents only brought that person into the life of this world, but his teacher brought him into the life of the world to come. The first was temporary, the second eternal. In fact, if a person's parents and their teacher, I found this interesting, were captured by an enemy and held for ransom, they believed that the teacher was to be ransomed first. You remember that. See, now you move from the synagogue into the life of the developing church for the believer. And in those early years, and James is writing perhaps the first letter in the New Testament, he's living, he's, 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 he's stepping over the threshold, as it were, of this transition period. Teachers in the Christian church no longer have to be rabbis. Uh, They weren't required to have the training to teach or to speak from the floor of the Christian assembly. Paul would later challenge Timothy to take his role seriously, to work hard in the Word so that he correctly interprets the Scriptures. So you add to this given admiration and respect for the teacher... To the fact that that the synagogue had kind of an open platform policy for visiting teachers. Both Paul and Jesus would take advantage of that. Now you have in the New Testament church, the assembly still often meeting on the Sabbath. That would transition by Acts 20 to the Lord's Day. The Sabbath being assigned to Israel. The Lord's Day being part of the new covenant for the assembly. And we would worship. In fact, we can worship every day. Chosen by the early church to be Sunday, which is the Lord's Day. Because of his resurrection. So you have this open policy in this transition period. And it would be very easy for someone to step forward who was motivated by the wrong thing. He desired the admiration. He wanted the respect. He wanted to speak rather than listen. He loved the attention given to the great ones. He wanted to be one of the great ones. James effectively says, hold on. You want the platform? Okay. But have you thought about the penalty? Well, what's the penalty? Knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. You want respect? Have you considered that kind of responsibility? Have you taken on the role because you want admiration? Don't overlook this coming day of accountability. And so he says, as he opens with the serious caution, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Why? Knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. That's future tense, by the way, used here. We will in the future incur a stricter judgment. James is referring to the Bema seat. 
the judgment seat of Christ before which every believer will one day stand not to determine whether or not he'll get into the kingdom, but how and where he'll serve in the kingdom. The unbelievers will be judged at a totally, entirely different event called the great white throne, where they will be judged and cast into the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20. The believer will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment basically involving the evaluation of what he did in the name of Christ. Sin won't be the issue, although that which we didn't do for his glory would certainly be seen or exposed as sinful. All of it paid for already by Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5 goes into detail on that. So James is delivering the news, which was surprising. And in fact, it's good to know for those of you, including myself, who teach, that those who do are held to a higher standard, which follows consistently with New Testament texts that give us a higher qualification for those who will teach. So pastors, youth leaders, Sunday school teachers for children, adult teachers, Bible study leaders, itinerant preachers, missionaries, parachurch leaders who handle the word, Bible conference speakers, radio television Bible teachers, Christian counselors, and the list could go on. Basically, anyone who serves the word of God to others and communicates his truth to students are going to get a double dose, a closer look, a stricter judgment. Every word will be judged, not only for its delivery, but its accuracy, its effect, its tone, its purpose, its spirit, its motive, its influence. Do you know what this means? This means that teaching is the most dangerous occupation on the planet. Do you really want to do it? I appreciate the fact that James, let me show you this, he changes the pronoun. This will be a little tedious, we'll get through it quickly, but I want you to notice this. He changes the pronoun. It's first person plural. Did you notice we, the word we, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such we will incur stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. James is not saying, now let me tell you something. All you out there are going to incur a stricter judgment. No, he's, he's holding himself in with this, this company. He's saying, I'm in this too. And I find that very encouraging. Not just all you, but us. And so am I. As I study this, I'm not just preaching this to you who teach. I'm preaching this to myself. I understand that by standing here and opening the word, I am inviting the indictment of God upon my life. That this very act will be evaluated. This is especially dangerous for me at this moment too. I knew when we started James that James 3 verse 1 was coming. I was hoping for another snow day. Maybe you're out there thinking, well, I just volunteered to teach an ABF. Now I'm not so, so sure about that. Or I just volunteered to teach a ladies' Bible class. Or I was thinking about teaching third graders until now. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. James is not trying to shut down the recruitment office. He's simply delivering a very serious caution. Be careful. Don't come unprepared. Don't treat it lightly. Don't enter into it for yourself. 
Study and live for the benefit of your student. Resist the accolade. Resist this heritage of appreciation. Remember you are a clay pot. And I am too. Fear to teach. Pray that you will not lead your students astray. Why? There is, James says, a final exam just for teachers. How's that for irony? A final exam, especially for teachers, is coming. And Jesus Christ, the teacher, the chief shepherd, will do the grading. And he will determine and then reward that which was indeed accurate and spiritually minded and spiritually motivated and beneficial and edifying and courageously truthful, God-honoring, and on and on. You see, no one makes a mad dash for the stage if they understand the gravity of the coming beam of seat and its evaluation of our speech that will be greater and more strict than for any other. The Scottish reformer John Knox was so awed and burdened by the responsibility to declare God's word faithfully that when he stood at the pulpit to preach his very first sermon, he burst into tears and wept uncontrollably and had to be escorted from the pulpit until he could compose himself again. Frankly, I fear today more than ever the trivialization of the pulpit and the sermon and the lectern. Now, following this serious caution is a, is a rather surprising admission. Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. Notice again, James includes himself. For we all Stumble. We all. Um, thank you, James. I would have expected an apostle to have it nailed down. And he could say, now you all stumble in many ways. And we'd all go, yeah, you're right. But how encouraging that James would say, look, I've got the same, I'm in the same kettle. I'm in the same soup, so to speak. Especially regarding speech. But isn't it true? Aren't we a little weary of teachers who teach as if they mastered it? Job had the same problem. He's confronted by God at the end of the book, chapter 40, around there. And he says, I will make no reply. I lay my hand upon my mouth. That's another way of saying, I have been talking way too much. Isaiah, great prophet, faithful prophet, encounters the living God. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Peter (laughs) periodically opened his mouth only to change feet, right? makes this an incredibly noble and passionate resolution. They will all fall away from you, Lord, but I will never. How that came back to haunt him. Eusebius, the first church historian, informs us that James had a couple of nicknames. One was camel knees because of his hours spent in prayer. His knees were leathery with calluses. He was also nicknamed the just because of his great virtue and commitment to Christ. So here you have an apostle 
an aged apostle, pastoring the church in Jerusalem, writing to the scattered Jewish believers. And he, the apostle, known for his prayer life, known for his virtue, says, for we all stumble. Would you note he does not say, for we all fatally fall. The word stumble means to slip up, by the way. Slip up in what we say. James uses the present tense to mean that this happens over and over and over and over and over and over again. Does that surprise you? That kind of realism that you'd have an apostle saying, we, I, stumble over and over and over again. Maybe you're out there saying, he's not talking about me. I don't stumble over and over and over. Just lean over and ask your wife, is this about me? (laughs) Go ahead, I'll wait. (laughs) We all... Stumble in many. If you look at your text, the next word is italicized. It's offered by the translator. Ways. Could easily have been translated words. We all stumble in many words. In fact, James goes on to write, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, so that's the context, he is a perfect man. And you go, oh, no, not that word again. Let me remind you that that word is different from what we think of, teleos. It means someone who is in maturing progress, not arriving at perfection. James is simply saying the one who is maturing, his progress is revealed by that tattletale that lives in his mouth. How are you doing today? You're still going to have to battle it tomorrow, but how are you doing today? Maybe, you know, you you lost it before you ever got to church. We all stumble, but those who don't, well, he's a perfect man, teleos, he's growing, he's progressing today. Thomas Manton, a Puritan who wrote in the early 1600s, preached in the early 1600s, shed light on this concept in his commentary on this word teleos, which was very helpful. I've had the commentary. I've picked it up every once in a while. picked it up this week. and He wrote this. In the Jewish discipline, there were two categories of students. One was called beginners. And he wrote, those who've begun their Christian walk and experiment in virtuous action. Good Puritan language. And the second category was called the perfect These were they who had attained some progress in their instruction. And so Manton goes on to uh, say, Manton, however you want to pronounce it, that this verse could be read, anyone who bridles his tongue is not a beginner, one who is experimenting in virtue, but a perfect, that is one who is made or making some progress. And isn't that the challenge? About the time you think you've made progress... You slip up. One author commented, why is the Christian path littered with so much orange peel? Can I show you the implication? 
that James feels the same way, which is, in my view, the proper attitude of progression and maturing. Now, I've already pointed, and again, back to the little tedious grammar, but uh, I've already pointed out that he uses the first person plural pronoun to include himself. Look, verse 1, we will incur stricter judgment. Verse 2, we all stumble. Now, as he describes the perfect one, the one progressing, he switches the pronoun. Look again at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Fascinating. James holds up the standard for us to pursue while at the same time encouraging us with a subtle turn of a pronoun that he's with us. None of us have arrived. He with us is still classified back over here as a beginner. By the way, that attitude is the mark of a maturing believer. I've had the privilege over the years in ministry to be around some very godly, mature saints who've served Christ for 30, 40, 50, even 60 years. It's always a delight to have some of these aged men come and preach during the summer. And I can tell you this to a man, at least those who get invited back, to a man in private conversations, every one of them does the same thing James just did. They classify themselves in the conversation as a beginner. Those who have much to learn. And this is James' encouragement. He's with us. So don't give up. Keep going. It may involve slipping, and it will stumbling, starting again. And I repeat, the Christian life of maturity is nothing more than a series of new starts. But keep in mind, you are not pursuing perfection. You are making progress. And that's daily. So don't give up. And don't let up either, by the way. James is giving none of us a free pass here. He's been challenging us in this letter to the very core of our attitudes and being, our thoughts. He's attacked our prejudices and our partiality. He's challenged our response to trials. He's challenged our response or view of temptation. He's called into question the very sincerity of our faith by the absence or presence of works. And now he's signed us up, all of us, in a course that he says he's involved in as well, related to our speech. And on that subject, James will spend more time than any other subject. In fact, he mentions the tongue in every chapter. He writes in verse 2, look back there one more time. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. In other words, you bridle the tongue, you bridle the body. Now what does he mean? Well, think of it this way. A a man who runs the marathon can take a lap around his house. A trained surgeon can take out a splinter. A professional golfer can handle a two-foot putt most of the time. A world-class chef can scramble eggs. See, they've learned the hard things. Everything else is easier. 
James is saying that whenever you bridle the tongue, and that's the hardest thing to do, everything else is easy. And there's truth in that. Now watch as James illustrates for us how powerful the tongue really is. He uses two simple illustrations for this truth. Notice verse 3. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Really doesn't need any commentary. I'm going to give you some because I've had three weeks to prepare. So here it is. If you put an instrument of pressure in the right place, guided by the right hands, even that instrument, though it is a small, slender bit, can turn the entire body of that massive horse. And here's the amazing thing. That horse is even in the, in the moment you're directing it, still more powerful than you are. That horse is stronger than you are. That horse is bigger than you are. That horse is faster than you are. But you can gain control of that magnificent animal by slipping the bridle over its head, getting the bit into its mouth, and when you do, you can canter along into the sunset as the music plays. See, in this analogy, the bit is your tongue. Your tongue directs your body. Something less powerful, this is less powerful than my body. This is two ounces. I weigh 100, well, you know, uh, somewhere in there, (laughs) just over 100. I weigh more than my tongue. That's the point. Okay, don't get nosy, all right? But my tongue can direct my body. My body's faster than my tongue. Well, I don't know about that. That analogy might break down there. James gives another illustration in verse 4. He says, look at the ships also. Though they are so great, are driven by strong winds, and they're still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Again, compared to the size of the ship, the, the, the rudder seems like an afterthought. Yet without it, that massive floating vessel is helpless to the movement of the wind and waves. That little rudder makes a difference in whether or not that vessel is seaworthy or not. Illustrated perfectly by John Phillips, a British commentator. I enjoy reading now he's with the Lord. But he illustrated in his commentary on James the Bismarck. What happened in World War II, the Bismarck was the pride of the German naval fleet, designed and destined to bring the British Navy to a watery grave. As soon as as news leaked out that the Bismarck had, had left port, the British Navy sent their finest battleship, named the Hood, with her 2,000 officers and crewmen to intercept the Bismarck and sink it. Instead, when the two ships engaged, the Bismarck, far superior, larger, more sophisticated, newer, faster, blew up the hood, and it sank. The situation was now desperate, 
the Bismarck could now impact the British sea lanes, which Great Britain depended upon for survival. In fact, this could turn the war. The British Admiralty scraped together a small fleet of what they had in hopes of catching the Bismarck before she could get back into port for refueling. One small aircraft carrier, limping along, got close enough to let loose a few airplanes, and one airplane got close enough to drop a torpedo, one torpedo in the water, which sped toward this massive battleship. One little torpedo, especially in World War II, wouldn't do a lot of damage, but that one torpedo struck and jammed the rudder of the Bismarck. And now all this naval powerhouse could do was steam around in a circle. That night, five British destroyers showed up and basically began target practice on this ship that could do nothing but circle until the Bismarck sank. All because of a little comparatively small object, the rudder. The pilot could no longer control that ship and the Bismarck sank beneath the waves of the sea. Look at these ships, James says. He's traveled on them. During the days of James, there were ships large enough for 300 passengers and corn to feed an entire city for a year. James says, look there in verse 5 as he, as he wraps up this, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. That, that's not a negative. It really does boast of great things. It does great things. This little thing called the tongue, so small compared to the body, does great things. Think about it. Little thoughts that are conceived in your heart and fashioned into words can direct your life effectively determining destiny in many aspects. Your tongue can sour your marriage or sweeten it. Your tongue will show up with you at work tomorrow and it can distance and discourage your fellow workers or unite. That could determine your career. Your tongue can accept an invitation it shouldn't or reject it, which can determine the course of your integrity. Your tongue can argue and disagree and refuse God. Or with a little word, it can follow him and maybe the word today is yes. I will. I confess, you're right. The tongue is so small, yet what it utters determines life. And the key then, remember, is not tongue control. In fact, we're going to discover in verse 8 or in our next session that no man can tame the tongue. You can't do it. This isn't about tongue control. This is about spirit control. 
And the implication in the reference to the pilot, we don't have time to deal with it today, but the implication is both the bit and the rudder are similar illustrations in that they must be under the control of an expert horseman or an experienced pilot. And you aren't either one and neither am I. The hands holding the reins must be Christ. The one piloting the ship must be our Lord. This is why David would would pray, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. You do it, Lord. I'll surrender to you. I will cooperate with you. I will commit to this with you. But my hands are weak. They can't handle the reins of this runaway horse. See, David asked the Lord to hold him accountable when he said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And for those who teach, surely that should be a theme verse. But for all of us as saints, the Lord of your life is the only one strong enough and wise enough to be the Lord of your lips. So what do we take away today as we have to stop here in really mid-theme? Well, I want to give you a couple of principles quickly of application from Thomas Manton, that Puritan pastor who preached through the book of James with his congregation in the 1600s. And I found them fascinating. I've reworded them a little bit so they're not, um, they're a little more easy to understand. First, rebuke others all the more tenderly. Where would he get that from? An understanding of the pronoun. We. We all stumble. Rebuke others all the more tenderly. Second, depend upon God's grace all the more earnestly. He writes, God wants you beholden to his power, not yours. Third, magnify the love of God all the more gratefully. He says it isn't enough to stop saying things, but... We should begin saying things with thankfulness and gratefulness, training our tongue, as it were, as best we can as we surrender to him. Finally, walk all the more cautiously. He gets that from the idea of slipping. Walk all the more cautiously. He writes this, and I quote him in this, you carry a sinning heart within you. And the man who has gunpowder on him should always be afraid of sparks. It's good, isn't it? Well, James is just getting started. There's a forest fire, a snake, a fountain, fruit trees ahead, as James illustrates the power of the tongue. But right now I'm mindful of a prayer, the prayer of an old saint, which needs to be the ready prayer on our own lips and certainly will be mine now. It goes like this. O Lord... Fill my mouth with worthwhile stuff and nudge me when I've said enough. I feel the nudge. Let's put a period here where God is at work in your heart and life. A heart that needs to be open to him. All of our lives are in need of spirit control. Maybe he's touched a nerve, so to speak. It may have nothing to do with this sermon. You may have come in here with a, with a battle, a struggle in your life and heart. But God's Spirit has encouraged you in one direction or another. 
as his child deal with that. If it's related to this subject, deal with that. As you're praying, if you're here today, friend, and you don't know Christ, you have no one to confess to. You have no advocate. We would invite you to Jesus Christ. You have allowed us, Father, today to have again the precious privilege of assembling in your name. In this unique gathering of saints, those who are called out ones, separated ones, as we progress and mature, and as we leave today, every one of us, I hope, Lord, believing ourselves to be merely beginners, help us to continue on. I have prayed earlier today, and I pray again with this body of believers for several hundred teachers on this campus. They are teaching not because they don't understand their responsibility, but because they do. Thank you. We together thank you for them. We ask for special protection for them. Even today, unique encouragement as we've all been reminded that, especially for teachers, every word will be given double scrutiny, a more strict judgment. And so we would say we believe in the Holy Spirit who must work in us and through us if anything will be done for your glory, if anything will be done of benefit. Thank you, though, for a church that is so filled with many teachers. What a privilege. May they increase. There are those, Father, who need to sign up and sign on, who now understand even greater the gravity of this, but who will accept it. Bless them. Thank you for the privilege of being able to follow your word. And thank you, our great teacher, for teaching us through your word today, ministering in our hearts in unique ways for every believer may make a difference tomorrow, even today, actually, Father, and then into the week as we serve you and stand for you and represent you. We pray it in Jesus' name and all the people said, Amen. Amen.